Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. You're listening to part two of my chat with former LAPD SWAT officer Charles Joe. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you pausing this episode and listening to that one first. In this episode, Charles talks us through his move to the Los Angeles Police Department's SWAT team and two of the most memorable high risk incidents he was involved in one as SWAT's negotiator, the other, as part of the entry team sent into a building to rescue several hostages. Hold on tight. This episode is action-packed with heroism, resilience, and a determination to rescue people in the most dangerous of situations. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. So let's talk about SWAT, because as you quite rightly say, it was you know, 12, 18 months that you were on the mounted unit before the SWAT trials came up. Now, I'm going to assume at this period of your life you were incredibly physically fit. You were looking for that additional, um, I don't know where we'd call it adrenaline, sort of more fast-paced tactical environment to get involved in in terms of being able to provide uh, a higher level of support, tactical support to your colleagues, first responders. Tell us about the SWAT trials, the challenges. I'm, I'm going to assume like it is here with our SO19 units and the different special weapons and tactics units within the Australian law enforcement that I'm aware of and have had experience of working alongside, that it's an incredibly intense 
training period and recruitment process? Yes, most definitely. I can say unequivocally that was the hardest um, obstacle, challenge, if you will, um, period that I had to overcome. Um, Very introspective time as well um, in my career. It was our selection process is the longest that I am aware of in all of law enforcement in the United States. We have a, at the time it was 12 week process. Mm It has gone from 12 to 14 to 12 back as well. But uh, it consists the first month of all um, firearms, weapons qualification. So one week we at that time were the only unit in the whole department that uh, would carry the uh, 1911, um, 45 caliber 1911 pistol. So having to learn a brand new system with with the thumb safety and the grip safety and all that, um, even that alone was daunting. It was a challenge because we didn't have access to that prior to that. Um, and then, um, so you got a full week of that passing three separate qualifications and once you pass that then you move on to the mp5 and you full week of that and but uh, at the time they had the selection the class had room enough for 14 selections so typically when there's a swat selection announcement comes out over the department wide um you had probably about a hundred people apply well, at that time when I when I went when I applied, you could not you could not apply unless you were in Metropolitan Division, so the stepping stone. So all the Metropolitan officers would would put in for it and try out. And there's a phase where you have to take the the PFQ, the physical fitness qualification, run, pull ups, it up, the Q course, if you will, and then a pistol manipulation, and then an obstacle course. And out of that, they would weed down. Um, Usually it's about 80 to 100 applicants. And from the, and then you would take an oral interview um, in front of a board of, of, of SWAT supervisors. And out of that, your packets, uh, everyone's packets would get um, evaluated. And from there, they would select 14. Mm. So out of 80 to 100, they'll pick 14 that they pick to go into the selection process, the school, which is 12 weeks at a time. So out of 14 of us... Um, you go through your first month would be all of the weapons um, qualifications, your pistol, your MP5, your rifle, and your Benelli semi-auto shotgun. Out of that month, those who could not meet the qualification, um, then they would get cut and selection. And then the 14, we probably lose maybe three or four. And then the second month will be all movement in the live fire shoot house. Start your first week with stealth. So basically, wow. slow stealth approach, working on mirrors, angles. The second week would be um, high-risk warrant service. Work on that all week. And then the last two weeks would be hostage rescue tactics. Um, and keep in mind, these are all live fire. So as we build up, build up, build up. And then the last four weeks would be um, running scenarios, running scenarios, all the different scenarios, how you perform in high-pressure situation scenarios with live fire. And typically, it's basically a 50 or 60% washout rate. So out of 14, there were six of us that <clears throat> um, made it out um, during that that year. And very, I felt very fortunate um, mm. being part of that. So actually, it was it's still kind of a blur that uh, out of the 14 weeks, we 
May I it was one of the ones that was able to make it out on the back end uh, and got a, got assigned to one of the squads. And the, our last day, because of our workload volume at the time and consistently, historically always been, we averaged anywhere from 130 to 150 call-outs um, a year, not including warrant services. Wow. So it was a pretty um, busy volume mm. and tempo. So because of that, they could not – typically, a lot of the SWAT teams in the country, they're part-time. So you do one or two days a month outside of your normal duties of a patrol officer. You would work um, – uh, train. you would train SWAT tactics one or two days. Um, for us, my last day of SWAT selection, we we're going to go back to headquarters, get our patches, and get all of our – you know. Um, assignments and then we had a call up that day next thing you know i'm shooting gas into the house and making entry one of the first two going the door and that's expected because of the sheer volume of of um, work we can't afford to have six of us or new candidates um sit on the sidelines and watch and learn slowly make entry it's just the it doesn't not designed to um, have a s- slow buildup. It's that's why the twelve weeks of you know intense training is there so that day one you can be going in. And that first year, um, we had nine hostage rescues. That year, the following year we had eleven, and then we steadily averaged about four, I'd say, to five a year since then. So it's a pretty high volume considering all the other. Um, agencies and cities don't have that amount of volume. So, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty difficult, I guess, undertake and, uh, and, and learn just a very steep learning curve during that school, especially from someone who had no military background, who came from, you know, teaching and business and then, and mm. then got thrown into law enforcement and then did all the different assignments, a very wide variety of assignments, and then ended up just, having a crack at SWAT. And I think I, one of the most fortunate, lucky, you know, uh, fellows that are able to kind of sneak through under the radar and make it out. <laughs> and uh, I was able to ex- experience um, the SWAT career as I did. Let's, let's talk about a couple of experiences that you've had at SWAT. And I think the first one we'll focus on is June 2016. You now you're assigned SWAT when you get a notice on your work phone of a possible hostage incident in the Hollenbeck Division, eastmost portion of the city of Los Angeles. You've got three gangsters involved in a very nasty uh, incident. You want to talk us through that one and, and your experiences and exposures? I'd say they, that incident wasn't that unique in a sense compared to all the... Uh, if you can say it's kind of like a run-of-the-mill incident, um <clears throat> that we typically saw the we see sheer volume of that type of instance because LAPD encompasses 21 geographical divisions or precincts and each precinct holds approximately 250 plus officers and wide range so it's a it's a large um Huge. territory mm. from San Pedro down by the harbor, the ports, all the way up to the valley, West Valley, where it's up in the Rolling Hills Mountains. So we see a lot of different terrain. But this 
this incident happened to be in uh, East LA, just east of uh, downtown, um, Hollenbeck Division. Division. A lot of gangsters and gangs um, block by block, and they were running away from police officers um, with with uh, weapons, rifles and pistols, and they um, broke into an apartment. It's a two-story apartment complex um, that had stairways on stairwells on both sides and they broke into this apartment that was occupied by three generations of um, hispanic women grandmother a daughter and a granddaughter and they um barricaded barricaded themselves in in one of the bedrooms while the gangsters were um had the run of the apartment trying to hide from the police officers wow. at which point when they barricaded themselves in the bedroom in the closet they took with them um a cordless phone so they had the cordless phone they called 911 alerted um the operator that they were inside and then these um, three gangsters were in the apartment so officers were able to connect where the gangsters came from from the original pursuit so they pretty much surrounded the place and they knew it was barricade so they call it SWAT. We have some breaking news for you at this hour. We're live at the scene of a barricade situation. You can see a SWAT truck and a team on the street. Of course, we don't want to show too much of the picture, um, but our Dave Gonzalez is live at the scene. He's working to gather more details. So stay with us for updates. But this is a barricade situation in Los Angeles. Breaking news happening in East L.A. at this hour. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department is on the scene. Deputies are telling us they were first sent to the scene for a report of a home invasion. And homes in the immediate area have been evacuated. We get out there. We contain it. And one of our sergeant supervisors were <clears throat> was on the phone with the 911 operator who was on the phone with uh, victims who was Spanish speaking only. So one of our sergeants was a Spanish speaking uh, supervisor, sergeant. So he was given the relay explaining that they're doing so. At, at that time, we came up with a hasty plan. Um, we had an armored vehicle with a what we call a Mars system, if you will, or elevated platform raised so we can have that platform staged um, right at the window, second floor window height. And we had a team, a rescue team, um, slowly creep up and, and stage near close enough where the plan was what we want to do is um, extricate the victims from the bedroom window quietly surreptitiously, surreptitiously so that once they're out now it's a barricade and we have all the time in the world if you will if you have a barricade then we can start negotiating if if uh, came to be uh, introduced gas and then that's kind of uh, the next stage and it's the safest way to uh, go about that scenario. So when the plan was was uh, initiated, we had officers. I was in the hallway holding cover down one of the long and one of the ends of the hallway. We had patrol officers there in a the washroom just to the adjacent of us. And in the meantime, one of the entry team members put, um, a, I think, 10 inch strip of uh, uh, explosive charge in the door. And they were held up staged in the apartment directly across the hall and the communication is going on the, the talks with the sergeant to the 911 operator to the women inside the closet were, were ongoing explaining to them that we are going to come up to the window you'll see us our 
um, operators come up to the window and we're going to open the door if we need window if we need help if you can come out help open the window and we're going to slowly rescue every single one of you guys out the window and that's the plan so on the phone they said that sounds good so we initiated the plan the armored vehicle went up on the lawn paralleled the building and as the platform got close to the window the target window the bedroom we're able to slowly pry it open and as we we're attempting to get the victims out they started panicking yelling in the phone to the operator who translated that to our sergeant saying they're trying to break in so i think the gangsters got wind of what we're trying to do and they're trying to break in and lynch them from us before we can get to them so that's what launched the rescue um, wow so at this point i'm in the hallway at one end um holding containment probably about three or four apartments down we've evacuated all the apartments on both sides and we pretty much have containment police officers or patrol officers are there in the garage room next to me with along with my other partner and I ex i'm explaining to the patrol officers we've got an explosive charge down the hallway and overpressure is going to come rushing past us if we have to set the charge so basically he told them when you hear the count, I'm going to repeat the count. It's going to be three, two, one. On one, step inside the washroom, open your mouth, and plug your ears so you can defeat that overpressure. And they kind of looked at me with confusement, confusion. And lo and behold, not long after I said that, that's when the whole plan now has to go to crisis. I said, hey, it's going to be a quick count. Here we go, guys. Three, two. I stepped behind a little pillar um, in the hallway. And next thing you know, the charge goes, all the overpressure comes rushing down our side. And next thing you know, I'm walking down. I hear we're going to work now. Everyone um, is going to work. I I hear the operators, my fellow operators going in with breaching shotguns and hitting different doors. We flashbang, noise flash device. We flashbang every room as we go. It's a diversionary devices. I, I hear that going along. So I'm probably seventh or eighth. Um, entering that structure, that apartment. And as we're going, it's like zigzag uh, maze of hallways in there, in that small apartment. And a couple officers are, are, are tied up working on a door that happened to be screwed shut. So they're working on that with a breaching shotgun. Officers are going to work, clearing bathrooms and so forth. And me being seventh or eighth going in, ended up going across the hallway, looking for work, finding a kitchen that's empty and on the opposite end of the kitchen i see an open door with another operator one of my buddies plugging that door and saying you know shouting out no bang no bang no bang which is a uh, a cue or a clue to us that I, whoever comes up behind does not need to prep a bang because he has suspects there so i get behind him i said i'm with you i gave him a squeeze and we made entry into the room we had three suspects with guns flying all over the room and throwing themselves out i guess they didn't want to they um, knew what was coming through that door they knew they knew it was coming it was banging every <laughs> room and they realized okay we're not gonna sit and fight with oh, these guys so no. they prone themselves out and, and guns were you know flowing everywhere and we took them into custody and everything went um fairly smooth after that so it was a pretty uh um clean incident no harm no foul ladies were rescued and you know it went well you talked about before entry telling those officers that they're going to get this overpressure coming through for those listeners that may not be from a policing background 
What does that? What's that all about? Is that the pressure from the explosion rupturing your eardrums? Is that what you're talking about there? Correct. Correct. So you've got um, uh, an ordinance, you know, explosive ordinance, whether it's dead cord, C4 amount placed, um, minimum enough to have a positive breach on a door. However, in that hallway, it's in a closed hallway. It's a tube. So the overpressure has to go somewhere and mm-hmm. it's going to rush out path of least resistance or find, find it. It will find its way out. And if you're in, in, in its path, you will, get a big hit of overpressure, which can do damage internal organs. It is a safe standoff dish distance for each charge that we have set. However, it can do um, some damage. It can do eardrums or internal organs that, that have hold air in it, like your lungs and your stomach and all that. So if you're in the line of all that overpressure, then it can do, if you're leaning up against a wall, overpressure, it goes along, hard surfaces so if you're leaning on a wall it almost gets feels like you're getting hit by a ball peen hammer um because the old pressure rushes off so you stay off walls you open your mouth unplug your ears and it, sh- it should be fine so i'm educating these police officers that this is what to expect don't um don't take it lightly and it was a pretty um intense overpressure uh blast that came through that hallway because these older apartments they are made with some really stout plaster and um thick walls so it doesn't absorb a lot of that um overpressure so you're getting the full blast um all the way down the hall so after that incident i assume after every sort of high risk rescue hostage situation you have a debrief understand what was good bad or indifferent um, you know, you've got three women who, without doubt, will be incredibly happy that you've you've come in and rescued them, ultimately, from these three individuals who are, I assume, carted away by local LAPD, taken back to the um, the cells and process. It must be an incredibly good feeling. Most definitely. Um, we are very proud of our track record. Um, we say of all the instances that we had, we do tout, you know, over 130 to 50 Instance a year where we use less than 1%, we utilize deadly force. So wow. that's a pretty significant number to it be is. out of if we say of all the instances that we've had, have had over the year, we, we consistently say that we use less than 1% uh, deadly force. So um, we are, are very proud of our ability to have um, utilize all the different tools to resolve um, these crisis situations, not just deadly force. So, um, like I said before earlier, is it starts and ends with um, negotiations. So we're constantly negotiating. We're always thinking of um, alternative solutions or creative solutions to mitigate the problem without having to default to deadly force. So one of the things that special weapons and tactics, the tactics we particularly um, um, have pride in ability to think outside the box and use and train. We, we train in such unorthodox tactics that it's not unorthodox to us, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, no, totally. I wanted to to talk about the next anecdotal story that you've sent across to me, which is quite incredible. Let's, just to give our listeners some context, we're talking about the Trader Joe's hostage-taking incident. You were assigned as crisis negotiating team. And the background to this is you've got a suspect who shot his grandmother seven times in the upper torso during an argument he'd had. 
and he'd taken his girlfriend and fled the scene from South Central area and a crime broadcast was generated as a result of that incident. Now, you're dealing with a very dangerous individual who's already overtly demonstrated his propensity for violence and uh, his uh, ability to use a firearm would, it would seem without total callous and disregard for, for life. Tell us about that incident. It seems incredibly confronting. It was very surreal in a sense that it was a um, Saturday afternoon, right in the middle, middle of the day. I was at a, a barbecue and we're hanging out and I was on turn to be negotiator that weekend. So it was my, uh, there's about 20 of us that are crisis negotiators, trained negotiators. It's all um, internal unlike other teams who have outsourced or not outsourced, but outside their tactical they different team, departments. Mm. They have different department or officers or trained um, individuals that aren't tactical. We've yeah. had this model from the beginning. We, we call it the centralized model where we have our own internal individuals that have that uh, opportunity to, to, to train, become negotiators. So it was my, my turn um, on standby on the weekend. So, I get this alert on our email on our phone. I said, hey, hostage crisis negotiation or um, hostage, multiple hostages at the Trader Joe's uh, termination of a pursuit. Shots fired. Now at five, you are looking live at breaking news, a police standoff at a crowded Trader Joe's store. The dash cam video begins with LAPD officers chasing a suspect after he allegedly shot his grandmother and kidnapped his girlfriend. When the suspect crashes into a utility pole outside the Trader Joe's, he opens fire at cops. They return fire. Just got an update from an officer here at the scene is that this is still a hostage situation. How many hostages? We do not know. But what we do know is that there is one suspect who is linked to a series of shootings. So as I go, I'm um, responding code three to the location. I'm about, I'd say, 10 minutes out. And I hear during that time, you hear a lot of chatter on the um, frequency. So, you know, this is a... a pretty significant um, call. A lot of times when you have these hostage rescue calls, you can parse out to see how, what the level of criticalness or seriousness is can be by the amount of chatter or amount of stuff. Yeah. This is, you know, it's up there. It's up yeah. there as we're responding. And about five minutes out, uh, I'm passing by the USC trauma hospital. And I notice I hear on the radio, they said, female girlfriend was transported to the USC trauma hospital. Okay, make a mental note as I'm responding. I get a phone call from our um, CNT crisis negotiating uh, team sergeant, who's also a SWAT sergeant. He says, did you hear the broadcast that um, the girlfriend just got transported to the county hospital? I said, yes, I did. I'm only a few exits away. He goes, well, we, the suspect, um, the sergeant I'd seen, patrol sergeant who landed there, who was there, was happened to have the phone on speaker and was talking with, negotiating with the uh, um, hostage taker at the time. And hostage taker uh, expressed to him, if he does not hear from his girlfriend immediately, he will start taking lives. Oh my so God. my 
uh, SWAT sergeant uh, negotiator, uh, crisis negotiator sergeant, CNT sergeant gets there. He hears that. He re- phones me to to see where what my ETA is to the crisis scene. I said, I'm just next to that hospital. He goes, did you hear what just transpired? She just got transported. I said, yeah, I got it. Um, I know where I need to go next. So as the exit's coming up, I pull over, pull off. The exit, get off the freeway and go straight to the emergency room and I come inside and, and keep in mind, I'm dressed the way when we are responding as a negotiator, we try to downplay the police side of it. Uh, so I'm wearing jeans. I've got a polo shirt that has a little SWAT insignia on it. I've got my police radio and my notepad and pen. And that's how we really respond as a negotiator. So we're talking with um, uh, family members and witnesses and we don't want that overbearing SWAT presence so we're very um scaled down so i walk this into the emergency yes exactly so i walk into the emergency room at that point i just see her being transferred from the gurney to the table in the um, emergency room and i look around there's a gaggle of nurses and doctors everywhere looking over she's got this big bandage over her forehead and in and out of consciousness so I grab what appeared in my mind, the head nurse. So I tugged on her arm. I pulled her aside and said, hey, this is who I am. I'm, I'm with the police department. I'm a negotiator. This is a situation we have. I need to speak to her. Thinking, great, she's going to part the seas and let me go do my work. <laughs> she looks at me. She goes, looks at me. She goes, you need to get out of here. So just boom, yeah. shut the door on that. So let's say a couple options. What do I do? Do I just say, I, I tried and go back and say, I, I I tried, but I got no luck. And then hopefully hope the best we can negotiate a, a peaceful settlement with, with what we have. And I said, oh, I can't go back and say, this is it. So there's got to be another option. You're always looking for different options, different ways. So I go see a doctor who's flipping through some charts, charts and I grab him. I need to speak to you. He goes, who are you? I said, well, this is what's going on, doc. There's a big crisis. This individual, her boyfriend, has taken several hostages at the Trader Joe's. 40 shoppers and workers at Trader Joe's were taken hostage inside the store, some escaping by a ladder, others sprinting to safety. And uh, he's threatening to kill, start killing all the hostages if he does not get to speak to her right now. So I just need to speak with her. So he paraphrases it and throws it back to me. He says, let me get this straight. If I help you talk to her and get what you need, we can potentially save more lives. I said, exactly. That's what he goes. How much time do you need? Just give me a minute. So he turns to the whole ER room and says, everybody listen up, clear out right now, make room. And then he says, here you go. So, okay. I hit the right person. And I, I got up, straddled up right next to her and I, um, got right to her ear. She's in and out of consciousness. Her name is uh, Sierra at the time. I said, Sierra, um, this is, can you hear me? She responded, yes. And I said, okay, uh, my name is Charles. I'm with the police department. Um, we have a situation. If you don't already know, your boyfriend has all these people host- held hostage and he just needs to hear you. Um, so we can kind of defuse the situation. Can you repeat after me some of the things I want you to say? She said, yes. So I said, great. So I put my phone on, I put the voice recorder on and I said, repeat after me. Um, I'm okay, just come out. 
and it seemed so short. It seemed like that's God. So you hear me in the background saying, um, one more time. So she said, I'm okay, I just come out. And I said, I want to speak to you. So that's the second phrase I said, I think that'd be good. I want to talk to you. And then she goes, uh, and then she, she impromptu, she says, I'm not gonna lie to you. He's not gonna want to speak to me. So she <laughs> says that, I said, oh boy. All right, well, how about say everything is going to be okay. I want everything to be okay. So I said that and she repeated after me. And then um, I got what I needed. And in the meantime, they rushed her up to um, the emergency room. Unbeknownst to me, the, his grandmother was already rushed up to the emergency room up there um, prior. She was in surgery. She made a full recovery, believe it or not. Wow. Um, talk about a strong woman, grandmother. So she made a full recovery. And so the girl was, his girlfriend was being rushed up. And then they went upstairs and took her to ER. So I sent that voice captured um, uh, file as a text message to my uh, coworker, who was my uh, other negotiator. We, we work in pairs. So I sent him say, hey, this is what I'm sending you. This is you'll you'll know what this is, right? Because uh, this is what you guys need. Sent that, and then you know, as I'm rolling, continuing to the site, we get to the site, and the car. So at the termination of these, this this individual was shooting back at police officers, so driving, you know, running gun uh, chase, and at the corner about uh, 50 yards from the street, from the Trader Joe's, the, the store at the intersection, he gets into a T-bone with another car and then it rolls to a rest in front of the, the Trader Joe's, about 30, 40 yards. And that's where he exits and runs across, runs into the front of Trader Joe's, at which point LAPD officers are fresh on his heels and they get into another gun battle while he goes in there. And he gets shot twice in the arm and suspect has approximately 10 hostages in the general area within the checkout line and uh, the the cooler area area um, held hostage and in the back room upstairs offices buildings all the employees are self-barricaded and looking for ways to get out and we had another team at the same time making entry in the back of the location climbing up and slowly um, doing rescues evacs if you will and that was going on at the same time when another team inside the back made entry to the back with a with a yogurt, almond milk, uh, all the you know juices are in the in the cooler section, looking at um, the the target area, the suspect with all the hostages. So we had two teams, three teams ready to go. We walk down, myself and my partner, a negotiator, and a, and a SWAT sergeant. We get into the police black and white that's right outside of Trader Joe's. We step in there because the, at the CP, it's a complete um, mayhem. We have the mayor there, all the deputy chiefs, commander, news, you know, feeds everyone's there inside the crime scene or around at the crime scene containment. So we go under the tape and we go into the hot zone. We step inside the black and white, and now we are on speakerphone with um, the suspect per se. He's not speaking directly with, with us it's um one of the hostages her name is mary and she is the i guess um intermediate person that we're talking with and we are talking and we go to work we talk about uh, having him release 
any hostage that are elderly are injured or weak or need attention we go through the whole list of um you know areas and subjects that we can probably exploit and from there we get compliance we got it all the way down to four left so we're four left we're feeling pretty confident we're good and as the last four we're negotiating we hear suspect in the background because it's on speakerphone tell the four individuals you guys just all leave too so inside we've got we're we're celebrating you know so we've got a victory once those four leave once again we've got a barricade and we could now exhaust take our time and safely you know work to his safe surrender so we 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 get to that huge milestone where the suspects mm. we hear him in the background say rest of you can just leave so my partner and i are kind of air high-fiving each other in the car great we're next thing you know we get interrupted mary who was our intermediate at the time with her phone she says uh no we are not going to come out unless we can guarantee the safety and well-being of this individual yeah so we said how did that happen and you know you you study during negotiation school you hear about stockholm syndrome mm -hmm. but that's over a prolonged time you know days if you will a lot of just interaction this happened within several hours so we're like wow that's unusual and she basically said we're going to be at all four of us are going to be an advocate for the suspect we've already exchanged information um with him and we're going to make sure he gets a fair and safe child she's already going down the road of being an advocate and at the time we're pretty confused but knowing that area it's a pretty liberal pretty um progressive part of town where they i think initially their perspective and i and i'm um assuming this as far as uh my perception and my kind of a summation of how this is transpiring that all they saw was uh individual coming in with gunshot wounds running from the cop running from the police so they felt this okay we've got to take care of it. there must be uh, a reason why he's being chased um you know, unjustly by the police officers they felt that they felt compelled to i guess protect him somewhat so that's how it evolved very quickly so now we had a different strategy we went and worked on okay let's let's see the individual we know he got hit and he's he sustained several um gunshot wounds so let's work on that angle we said he is he is he hurt is he bleeding out yes he's significantly lost some blood but let's get him treated and before he loses consciousness because if if he dies and it's it's for not anything right we want to save lives and we went down that road and um so they agreed he's gonna come out but they said he said suspect said i am not coming out without handcuffs i know you cops if i come out with handcuffs you're gonna your sniper is gonna kill me execute me we said no that's not gonna happen no he's not coming out with, without handcuffs so we said okay we can accommodate that so one of our swat team members um threw some pair of handcuffs in front of the front sliding door and mary came out picked him up and went back in and was able to but due to his injuries he sustained on his arm he couldn't put his arms behind his back to get cuffed. And we said, that's okay. You can put them in front and make sure the hands are up high. So we don't, you know, uh, mistake him for any other actions. So then they agreed and, and long story short, they agreed he came out. 
Uh, and prior to that, we said, make sure you come out, make sure he does not have any weapons on him when he comes out. That's going to be pretty important. He said, oh, no, we took that away from him a long time ago. We hid it in a bag somewhere in the store. So he did not have a weapon with him, and they were treating his wounds. And so they came out. If you have a chance to look at the videos um, on on YouTube or online, they have him with his hands up with four of the remaining hostages coming out as a human shield um, protecting him. As he came out, we had our um, operators there waiting and peeled one by one off and took him into custody. Breaking news at 8, a suspect captured after a deadly hostage standoff at a Silver Lake Trader Joe's. Here's the latest. The suspect has been captured. Um, unfortunately, the biggest tragedy out of this whole situation is during that crash and gun exchange, the manager was a young lady in her early 20s, um, stepped out um, during that commotion to see what was going on. And she takes a friendly fire around across her shoulder into her chest and she steps back inside and collapses and dies. On behalf of myself and the men and women of this department, I want to express my deepest condolences and sympathy to her family. The two Los Angeles police officers who have been pursuing Atkins return fire in defense of their lives and to protect Atkins from harming other individuals. That is the absolute most tragic outcome of this whole situation. And afterwards, when they all were being debriefed, the four individuals who exchanged information with him um, realized this 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 individual, the suspect, wasn't um, a saint after all. Um, he basically shot his grandmother seven times in the chest, shot his girlfriend once in the head, and they kind of regretted um, hastily being an advocate for him and gave him all the information. So um, lesson to be learned on that was uh, be careful, you know, how much you... Uh, I guess, bite of the apple before understanding fully um, the content of the book and so forth. So uh, it was a very interesting situation where I experienced somewhat of a um, uh, pseudo, um, what, how do you say, uh, Stockholm syndrome, but we say it's mm. a silver, we call it Silver Lake syndrome because of the nature of that neighborhood and how they uh, immediately jump to conclusion to to protect this individual where it was kind of um misread and uh, misjudged in the beginning but uh, yeah that was uh, quite an interesting and captivating situation i read up on that matter because obviously one of the greatest tragedies to come out of it as you pointed out was the fact that tragically the shop assistant who came out um was tragically hit by friendly fire from police naturally um as there always will be uh, some level of criticism leveled at police in terms of that outcome but ultimately the district attorney coming to the conclusion that the officers were justified in using lethal force because of the threat that they faced from this individual atkins um, and ultimately uh, weren't charged with any crimes in terms of their conduct in trying to manage what was an incredibly dangerous situation you know also noting that um, the offender was charged with 51 crimes including murder two counts of attempted murder four counts of attempted murder of a police officer and several counts of false imprisonment and his bail was increased from 18.7 million 
to 23 million. Later this morning, 28-year-old Gene Evan Atkins is expected to be arraigned on murder charges and a long list of other felony counts. Police say Atkins engaged officers in a running gun battle that led to Corrado being struck and killed by an LAPD officer's bullet. Even though investigators say Atkins did not fire that deadly shot, under state law he can be charged because he allegedly set off the chain of events. Now I think uh, the most recent publication on this matter is that he's claimed a level of insanity and, or mental health issues, which obviously he says were a um, factor, significant factor in his actions and his behaviour. I, I would imagine that the fallout from such a significant event occurring, the debrief for this matter must have been very closely reviewed and there must have been a lot of chat afterwards as to how everybody performed but ultimately a lot of lives were saved that day mm -hmm. yeah once again you can't emphasize the tragedy the unnecessary tragedy um of the store manager who just succumbed to that friendly fire that i think will always ever forever go down as just one of the unfortunate um turn of event for such a um successful uh outcome in that sense it kind of tainted uh mm. you know we, we we could not celebrate that such a great victory uh, in our negotiation you know um, debrief because of that overlooming um un unfortunate untimely death of that young uh, lady but i think there's so many takeaways on that and so many different levels and i think what helped those officers, uh, patrol officers, in the sense that the chief, police chief, um, released the body cam footage almost immediately. And what that allowed the public to see was just the chaos and the, and then the, the level of danger that the officers were subjected to in a running gun battle. Body cam video shows the same dramatic moment. This is from the second officer's body cam. As one of the officers races to take cover behind a wall, you can hear what sounds like a bullet ricocheting off a pole. As well as a um, potential right there, immediate high, high risk hostage situation that they mm. um, very, very uh, tempered themselves not going in after him where they, it could have been either or. They had justification yeah. to follow him in, knowing that it's a public, open, um, crowded uh, store. They had hot pursuit. They had potentially, you know, mitigating any hostage situation. They could have gone in, but they um, stayed behind and allowed the situation to, uh, I guess, slow down and allow us to do what we did. So it could have gone either way. And it showed the restraint of the police officers as well as discipline, but showed the public that how on on any occasion this that the decisions they have to make and then the danger that they're faced so that helped them a lot as far as if we didn't do that um the public ends up writing their own narrative before you know you know they say a lie goes around the world three times before this mm -hmm. the truth even gets started and um i think that helped a lot kudos to um the police chief having that foresight to do that um put a pretty quick close to it. And after that incident, um, my partner and myself, negotiators were constantly, um, uh, I don't say harassed, but were sought after for interviews 
for all the different news agencies and we refused and we kept on saying we 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 use the excuse of this is a continuing ongoing investigation we're not allowed to comment or anything but it was for a while they were looking to uh have us give our um opinion or or our story of that whole harrowing hostage negotiation but it's died down to where i think we are no longer um sought after especially my both of us retired um since uh Mm. that incident so it's it's an interesting one because as you quite rightly say for me the important thing here is understanding the significant threat pressure and risk these patrol officers are under and i would imagine not a day goes by where they don't think about the loss of a of a of a bystander to an incident created by a gentleman who's clearly just out of control um i would imagine their human feelings would touch them every day about that matter but the bravery of the chief to release the body worn camera to immediately st- stabilize the narrative so that you you know because we police by consent you know there's a famous saying the police are the public and the public are the police and 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 and, and that's so vitally important but equally is is important for the public to have confidence in their police that they're making decisions and they're acting in the best possible manner they can with the scenario they're presented with so to be able to demonstrate and to put that narrative out there immediately to stop any sort of media outlet creating their own narrative and then you know that as you say that whirlwind storm starts is is quite incredible and shows really great leadership in supporting the officers in trying to navigate what is an incredibly difficult period in their own personal lives and professional lives in terms of what's gone on so it's um it's a it's an incredible story thank you so much for sharing it uh, in in obviously you chose to step away from policing um not too long ago now um, but still remain a reservist with the LAPD SWAT. Um, you're obviously uh, very well sought after in terms of your experiences in the 12 years that you served in the department full time. What led you to call time on policing and to move into the private sector? Um, I attribute that to my directly to my time in SWAT. Um, prior to coming to SWAT, I was I was kind of a homebody. I didn't really travel a lot. I just stayed kind of near home. Um, even college, uh, I stayed locally. My I have an older sister, two years older, and right out of high school, she went to the opposite coast. She went to Boston University and never looked back. You know, she was always a traveler. She always tried to get me to go abroad and travel and go see the East Coast and so forth. And I was kind of always a homebody. And not until I got into SWAT was when my horizon was really broad, broadened, so to speak. Mm. I had the opportunity to go to Canada, teach um, SWAT team out there, East Coast, all over the country. Uh, we went to Dubai, South Korea, everywhere I had the opportunity to go and teach. I caught the bug. Caught the bug to travel and teach. And I think <laughs> that that was rekindled from my years of being a high school teacher and so forth it it allowed me to kind of get that get that spark back and i decided to start a training company um called tricell usa so i take active uh operators and i go all over the world all over the country teaching swat teams tactical teams anything you know 
um, that we can to basically any any excuse I can get to travel and take some friends with me and um, <laughs> explore the world again. And we've been having such a good time. Um, the motto. So I've got two two things that um, as I was learning the private sector, when you when you start a company, you need a tagline and you need your, you need your mission statement. My tagline and the mission statement, very simple, very clean. My tagline is excellence derived from experience. And I throw that out there. So when people ask, yeah, the experience that we, overwhelming, you know, experiences that we've had over, I, I've experienced through my career and with my team and the history that I can bring up, I say we can, that's where we try to achieve excellence. And we can throw out there excellence is achieved through experience. And then my mission statement is as i say set high goals bring good friends along and enjoy the ride and very simple i try to live by that with my company and i've got about 30 um instructors from different agencies different tactical experiences we come and we deliver that to everywhere around the world and it's been amazing and wow. one of my mentors early on in my career impressed upon me the first third of your career, you learn as much as you can. The mm. second third of your career, you have as much fun as you can. The last <laughs> third, you give back as much as you can. So I wholeheartedly embrace. And with each segment comes equal uh, reward and, and, and gratification. And I say I'm in the third portion where I'm saying give back as much as I can. And I've had been blessed with this opportunity to have a platform and, and the ability to create this company where I take these individuals who have such unusual skill sets, extraordinary skill sets, and advertise that all over, all over the world. Say, hey, we are here. Call us and we'll go out there and start training and share with crisis negotiation skills, hostage rescue skills, uh, firearms, whatever you would like to share and and and. Um, trade stories we're here so um, it's been a blessing I think I also became co-founder of a shooting range um, called Route 66 Shooting Sports Park here out by um, me in LA in San Bernardino County and my goal for that big piece of land it's it's 100 acres currently 50 acres of it is is open to the public we have private ranges and all that but I had this secluded 50 acres tucked away behind this canyon that I wrote a proposal on to develop that with grant money into uh, it's called Tricell International Training Institute. My goal is to create an institute, training institute, live fire shootouts, five-story repelling sniper tower, all the different training facilities that's solely dedicated for law enforcement and military. In the United States, there's very rare uh, uh, location. There's a lot of public um, shooting ranges. A lot mm -hmm. of public places, but the law enforcement basically has to stand in line and um, they they work around the public venues. They really can't do any extraordinary training and so forth. So uh, throughout my travels, I say if I have, ever have an opportunity to create an, a, a range where I can solely dedicate to having law enforcement priority. So I wrote this proposal to get grant money and we're really moving a lot and the whole thing is we need to get an international tactical training institute prepared with a shoot house and all that. So we have two big significant events coming in California in the next few years, 2026 World Cup and 2028 Olympics. 
mm-hmm. they're going to be all over the Southern California area. So I'm I'm laying the groundwork to create this training facility where international teams can come and train on U.S. soil to prepare the tactically and security-wise. So when their country comes in for a World Cup and and Olympics, they are working shoulder to shoulder with local SWAT teams, local police officers, and we 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 can just be just that much more um, unified and and trained to the level that we can be. So that's my big project. We're pushing for it. We're very close to building out that back portion of it. The front portion has been up and running and it's it's doing well. But my personal project is this back area, seeing that there is this uniqueness um, where it's tucked away and we can do um, police and SWAT training uh, within our own, you know, confines and, and train each other and, and all that. So that's my next chapter that I'm developing and I'm having such a good time doing that. I think that's where through that, throughout networking, you found me and uh, we, yeah. we connected. So, well, listen, Charles, it's been an absolutely incredible just on approaching two hours of conversation about your career, your experiences, what is clearly your passion in public service and providing our police officers in the U.S. with the best skills they can possibly have to be the best people they can be in terms of being able to provide that ultimate service to the public, which is protecting people in their hour of need. So uh, on behalf of my team at the Protect and Serve podcast, thank you ever so much for your service um, and your dedication and commitment. And uh, we wish you all the best in your post-policing career and hope all these projects take off and and people really do get to be exposed to some of the best training facilities that you're able to offer. Thank you so much. Thank you for just having this great platform and and and, and connecting globally, intercontinentally, how we can uh, uh, just talk like-minded stories and uh, just a great, I just enjoy networking and meeting great like-minded people. So thank you, hats off to you for um, all your success. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>